guys, I went to my first party post-COVID, and it was an outdoor gathering with about 30 people, an outdoor birthday party, and I'm not gonna lie, in the first 10 minutes, I absolutely froze, and I was like, I can't remember how to talk to anyone and it was very interesting so I'm excited to see like how COVID like life after COVID progresses and getting to know people and meeting new people in person and and gatherings and socialization it's so exciting but anyways this is the Hacker Noon podcast my name is Amy Tom and today I am joined with Thierry and John welcome to the podcast everybody how are we doing today hey Amy nice to meet you yeah, doing great. Thank you. How are you? So, afternoon podcast. John, you are the CEO of Mux, and Thierry, you are the CEO of Stream. And I wanted to bring you on today because you both have built an API powered platform as your business. And I'm very curious about this. So, to start though, I guess. I have some questions about building an API powered platform in the sense of like, <laughs> why, I guess, because as far as I know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not a developer, but an API is something like that's a very specific thing that a developer uses to perform a specific function, right? Like it's a set of code that helps them to perform a specific function. So starting a company that acts on a very specific niche function. I'm curious about why you chose to do that. John, do you maybe want to start? Yeah, I think there's a really specific reason why I started Mux and got into video, but I think mm -hmm. the, the general answer to APIs is, the, the way I think about it is uh, software is getting so much more and more complex today than it, mm -hmm. I'm not a video game person, but if you think about video games, like 20 years ago, like one person built a video game from start to finish. They did every, or maybe 30 years ago, they did everything. And now it's hundreds and thousands of people working on these really sophisticated things. So as software gets more complex, the, the more efficient that people can make software, it has a huge value. So APIs are a way of bringing in additional capabilities in the software without having to build it yourself, which mm -hmm. is just a huge need. But isn't it like such a specific niche function that you would run or do with an API? And so I guess like, why would you go so niche is my question. Maybe another way to put it is I think actually APIs are the, just the right way to deliver infrastructure today. And so most software is built on APIs. So I, mm -hmm. I don't think it's a narrow, like we have a narrow focus, we work with video, but the mm -hmm. overall category of APIs is of just API. a really big, important part of pretty much all software. Yeah. I think okay. Twilio used to get that feedback as well, right back in the days, like, why are they doing this niche thing? Yeah. It seems small, but uh, yeah, that's the big trend in the market. So instead of building apps from scratch, people are using APIs from everything from what we do here at Stream for activity feeds and chat to things like video, search, location, every component of an app is being turned into an API and into a standalone business. And uh, yeah, it enables customers to launch their app faster, to grow faster without the traditional scalability concerns. Some of the reasons that I started Stream, so my first startup was a social network. It grew to millions of users and we had a lot of difficulties like keeping the activity feed up and running to follow other users. That company ended up uh, selling, uh, it did okay. And I just kept on thinking about it. Like why did we spend so much time building something that tens if not hundreds of thousands of apps have and that was a lot of the motivation for starting stream so we offer these reusable components for building activity feeds and, uh, and chat i actually think it's a 
it's a really exciting time for engineers and for developers because if they're really good at some specific part of apps, it gives a really uh, strong opportunity for people to start startups that maybe wasn't there mm. before. So I think it's uh, I think it's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you're saying like giving them the development skills that they don't already have. Yeah, yeah, it gives, I think a lot of companies can build things in-house, but time we did effort. that back in the days, but it's like time and effort. Mm -hmm. And our our messaging was like, you send a message and email arrives. There was like, no, there was no features or functionality in there whatsoever. And uh, I think nowadays consumers just, they expect a really high level of polish, uh, both in consumer mm -hmm. apps. If you're using a dating app, you expect everything to, to work smoothly on the chat side of things. If you're like talking to your teacher, uh, education is a very big vertical for us. So patients, teachers, these type of communications, they should still work well. And uh, that's what consumers have come to expect. Um, I think that's a big part of the drive why companies like Stream and companies like Mux are becoming very popular because the bar just went up in terms of like yeah. the quality that you have to ship. Okay. Okay, cool, cool. But yes, and now I'm under getting to the understanding that like this is more of an uh, industry standard than I assumed it was. Okay, cool. We're on the same page. So now I want to take multiple steps back and find out what your first jobs were because I want to understand like how you got to where you are today. So. Thierry, what was your very first job? I started, the first thing I did was a, a gaming website when I was 13. Um, and the, Wait, your first job was a gaming website? Yeah, like I created this <laughs> You weren't this, like, like a paper boy or something? Like it was, I, I think shortly after also, I did some, I worked in a supermarket, in a local supermarket for a bit, uh, as yeah, well as okay. slicing bread, all the good stuff. Yeah. But yeah, See, no. See, that like, seems think, like a more like quote unquote normal first job. Yeah, no, I think that I did that afterwards, actually. No, the first thing I did was a, a gaming website and uh, put AdWords on it and you know, started getting wow. checks, which I'm from the Netherlands, uh, so it was weird to get a check. I had no idea what to do with a check. So yeah, no, that was one of the first things. I, yeah. Wow. Okay. And John, what was your very first job? Very first, like my paperboy job was yeah. mowing, mowing lawns. I had three or four lawns in the town I grew up in that I mowed yeah. once a week and that was it. Uh, how much were you making? I think I got, some of these were big lawns. I got 40 bucks, which was- Oh, that's quite a bit. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Some were smaller, but yeah, it was about that. All right. Cool. Cool. And then from lawn mower, where did you go? Well, I kind of, so I, I went to college, I actually studied philosophy in college and actually got a graduate degree in theology. So I pursued this totally different course when yeah. I was young. Uh, okay, what, wait, what did you intend to do with that degree? Maybe something academic, maybe okay. each, right? That kind of thing. That was always something that attracted me. But then like I graduated and I'm like, I should probably work for a few years. You don't get paid a lot of money as a philosopher or as a theologian. So I, I actually, I taught myself programming and built a little dev shop. And that was my first like full-time job. After, after. Okay. Can I ask around what year this was? Um, 2005. Okay. So yeah. how did you learn programming? I, I took, I took a Pascal class in high school and I took a little bit in college. I did like half of a CS degree, but really I just taught myself. Like I, I, I found problems and I like read books. I worked through a bunch of books and a bunch of online sort of things. And I went from being a pretty bad programmer to a pretty medium programmer, let's say. Okay. All right. And then how did you get on to start Mux? Yeah. 2007, I was running this little dev shop and we got hired by a startup that wanted to work with video. So they wanted to build like a better YouTube in 2007, which since YouTube is YouTube, obviously this did not work out, but I, I, I didn't know anything about video and they were like, okay, John, you could build a video transcoder. And I'm like, what's video transcoding? Um, 
so I figured I figured this out. And the first thing I did was like look for a vendor, look for an API, honestly, that would do what we wanted. And there was nothing out there in 2007. So mm-hmm. I did it. And then the startup didn't go anywhere. And then I, I bootstrapped around this idea of video is probably going to grow. And this is a really hard problem. So I built a couple of rudimentary versions of a video transcoding cloud API service, got together with some friends. And then we started a company called, which was my last company, which was an early API, an early video API company. So that's the backstory. We ended up selling the company really young, like two years in, we sold the company. Um, yeah. And at the end of that whole journey, it was like, man, that opportunity is still there. And that's why we yeah. started Mux. Okay. So wait, is Zencoder different from the service that Mux provides? Yes, Zencoder, Zencoder does one specific thing. It does video transcoding, which is something everyone has to do. Like every video you ever look at on the, on, on the internet is transcoded, but it's really only one part of the picture. Mux does that plus a lot more. So Mux okay. is it's one, one level higher of a service and does a lot of other things too. And I guess like I have a logistics question about being a founder. When you sell a company and then make a new company that's based off of the original company, is that... I guess that's allowed because you did it. But yeah. Yeah. So I'm not a lawyer, consult your lawyer, all that, but yeah. it depends by state. So we were in California. California has a very robust, like pro startup, pro employee uh, thing. Non-competes are generally not enforceable in California, except mm. during an acquisition. So we actually did. We signed a non-compete and we honored a non-compete after selling the last company. Th- those expire and, and then you're more free mm. to do what you want. Yeah, because as a founder, is the point of founding a company not to like eventually sell it for a lot of people and then just start another one. So I got, I think that kind of makes sense. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And so Thierry, I would love to learn more about what happened after the stint in the grocery store. <laughs> Where did you study? I studied the business at Erasmus University. So that was fun, international business. So we had people from all over the world. And I started on my first startup when I was 20. So the last year in university, I was doing both, both working and studying at the same time, which I don't recommend anyone to do. It's, mm-hmm. a, <laughs> it's a hassle. But uh, yeah, the first company ended up ended up growing, sold. Then for Stream, we participated in Techstars New York. Because one of the things that really frustrated me with the first company is how, how hard it is to raise money in Europe. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had other founders okay. talk about this, but Raising money in Europe can be quite difficult. And then we did Techstars in New York. And I still remember Dharma Shah from HubSpot, like straight after the program, emailed me and he said, hey, I'd like to invest 100000 And I emailed him back, okay, do you want to jump on a call or talk? And he said, no, I'm busy, but sign me up. And basically, like he ended up investing <laughs> before oh, okay. the paperwork was even done. It was great. Like raising money in the US is much, I think the, the VC ecosystem here is very sophisticated. And that really uh, is an advantage. So that's why I, I moved to Colorado. We ended up raising our first round, second round, third round here. The last two rounds we raised during the pandemic. So that was an interesting twist on things where you don't meet up with the VCs. That, uh, but of course, growth accelerated for us quite a bit with all the chat experiences moving online from like live event companies like Hopin to education to healthcare. Everyone suddenly needed to have a polished chat experience. So that mm-hmm. that, uh, that helped. At the moment, we power activity feeds in chat for uh, a billion end users. So the mm-hmm. odds are pretty high that some of the apps on your phone are, uh, are using us. Okay, wait, I have some questions about venture capitalists things in Europe then, because how, what's the main difference, would you say? I think the main difference is that you typically need series A metrics to raise a seed round in, in Europe. It's just one stage harder for every round. 
It's getting better. So there's some new funds coming and they're starting to be more, more aggressive. But I still see most companies in Europe struggle with the fundraising side of things or raise, sometimes they succeed to raise from US investors, but it's difficult if you're not in the country. So yeah, it's a tricky problem. Interesting. Okay. I did not know about that. Cool. And what, I guess like, how did you stumble upon starting your company? Well, we just ran into this problem ourselves. My first startup had an activity feed. It had mess. They both struggled in different ways. The activity feed was impossible to scale. The messaging uh, was not as polished as you're used to from like an iMessage or a WhatsApp or a Slack. So yeah, we were solving our, our own problem. And we saw a bigger trend with companies like SendGrid. They do it for email. Algolia, they do it for search. Uh, so this trend started becoming a thing. And I think in 2014, 2015, we got started with, uh, with Stream. John, is it Max from around the same time or you guys been? Yeah, 2016 really, but pretty close. Mm -hmm. So what I think is interesting is that John, you come from a like software background or you taught yourself how to do the software and that's how you got into it. And Thierry, you came from a business background. So I guess, do you feel like one has more weight than another in terms of being a founder and CEO? John? Actually, I, I started learning how to code at, at 13 or Oh, so. right, right, right. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I did yes. the exact same thing. The website, thing. Uh, the yeah, website like, game uh, developer, yes. Yeah, no, I think everyone learns how to code, most of us at least do. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think the conventional wisdom now, like 20 years ago, the conventional wisdom was you got to have an MBA if you want to start something, or I don't know, I, yep. I, I wasn't really doing this then. Now the conventional wisdom is you have to be a technical, you have to have at least one technical founder and maybe all technical founders. Mm -hmm. um, in reality, I think the, the reason is not that you actually want your CEO programming, but if you're building software, if the domain is software, it's just really valuable to understand the domain. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not, there, there's lots of successful companies that don't have engineer founders, programmer founders, but I think these days, probably most do. Most do, yeah. Yeah, at yeah. least if you yourself are not the technical co-founder, then you have another one. John, you are a co-founder though, and so are you, Thierry, is that correct? So how many uh, founders are part of Mux, John? There's four of us. Which wow, is a okay. Big, big founding team, usually mm -hmm. you see two or three, um, but yeah, yep. there's four. Mm -hmm. And everybody has a different role and part of the organization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're all technical. I'm probably by far the worst engineer out of all the whole group, but yeah, one, one actually has, is leading, we call it developer experience, but it's really marketing plus support plus solution mm -hmm. engineering, dev advocacy, open source, all that just cause yeah. And then one leads product and one came from a led engineering for a long time for us. Mm -hmm. And what was your role? Uh, CEO. So CEO. Uh, the big boss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's fundraising and then that, that's where it starts. Like your first round is, okay, someone's got to do that. And then lots right. of things after that. Mm -hmm. And how many people are a part of your team today? Uh, about 110. Whoa, okay, big. Yeah, and it's new too. We were probably half this a year ago. Wow, okay, so growth is going growth. crazy. It must be stressful to manage as a CEO. It is, although it's always stressful. <laughs> it's like when yeah. you're people, you feel the same burden as at mm. least I, I felt the same burden at 10 as a hundred. It's, it's I'm, I'm sure it may, maybe it's different at a thousand, but. Uh. Okay. And Thierry, how many people, how many founders did you start with? Yeah. So it's uh, Tommaso and myself. I'm technical and focus more on the marketing side of things. And Tommaso is like really deep into the storage technology and the, the tech side of things. Oh, so okay. Tommaso is the, the more technical version on the team. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a crazy, like the last 
a year ago, our stream was, we were about 30 people and now we're up to 130. So it's been, wow. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. a, indeed a little stressful, as you say, it, it just, it feels like it changes when you go from managing people who do the work to like a couple layers in between. I don't know how you experience that, John, but it's, it's I don't know, for me, it's a different vibe somehow. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I guess like, how do you decide to hire that many people at once going from 30 to 130 and 50 to 100 in less a year or less is very fast so how do you decide that that's the direction you're going to go into uh, yeah sorry Thierry, do you want to start i don't know i was just about to say that i think it's very we were very conservative with our growth for like the first four or five years but then because the metrics i think just didn't justify like doubling down that aggressively. But then our growth really accelerated. As I said, we fired to compete in chat for a billion end users. Uh, our chat product grew, I think it was like 625% in one year. So, well, because of that growth, we ended up raising funding. And we also really needed to grow the team because there's just, even the customer support side of things, like we would mm -hmm. get maybe 50 questions from customers in a month. Now we get like 700. So there's just so much more pressure on the organization and you need a bigger team because of that. Mm -hmm. But uh, for us, we waited quite a bit before we saw the growth up before we took that step to increase the size of the team. Yeah, I'd say not too different. We try to be disciplined with our growth. So every time we, basically every time we raise a round of funding after our second round, we put together an operating model. And I know this sounds old school, but I have an old school like business advisor who really pushed me to do this and it's the right thing. Where we really have like projections and try to have an understanding of what the financial picture is five years. And our goal has always been to try to hit positive cash flow on every round of funding. We're always on a path where we can stand on our own feet. We might still raise more money and we did that a couple of times. And then we can just grow faster because now all of a sudden we can hire a lot more people to get to uh, profitable. But it's, it's that. And then on the other side, it's just like huge conviction that this is a big market. I, I, I have no doubt that the faster that we invest and the faster that we build, like the faster that we'll grow for a long time. If you're ready to scale your startup faster, you can get approved for a 10 to 20 times higher credit limit within minutes with Brex. So you can visit the link in the show notes of the episode or visit brex.com for more information. Back to the episode. Mm, okay. Exciting. So I guess I also want to know what do you wish that you had known that you know now when you're starting your own company? Like if you had some advice to give to a future entrepreneur, what would it be? John. So I'm going to, I'm going to give, I'm going to give the opposite advice. 10 years ago, I would have given advice that probably sounds, I don't know, Y Combinator advice or kind of like all the conventional wisdom today. Now what kind of, which is really like just build good software and talk to developers, which is totally true or talk to customers. Mm -hmm. I'll say the the thing I've learned that I wish I knew was actually as you scale a company and scale a team, some of the like traditional stuff really matters. Like I, I used to think at my last company, I didn't know how to manage people. <laughs> I, I thought management was stupid. It's, I don't know, like wh why would you want managers? They're just like dead weight or something or overhead or whatever. But actually a lot of just the fundamentals and like good management are just really important. And it doesn't come obviously to someone who's like a self-taught engineer, like mm -hmm. it's a different track, but it's really mm -hmm. helpful to bring the two tracks together. Okay then how do you think that you learned your management skills? Because it's um, really hard, yeah. It's yeah. it is really a skill. I'm only just starting to become like even any kind of semblance of a manager. I now have a podcast editor, shout out to Alex who helps me with all the podcasts. So I'm managing the podcast and I am very overwhelmed. Yeah, like how do you, how did you learn how to manage? 
Yeah. I think I originally learned just intuitively and I got some things right and got some things wrong. Most of what I got right was around like good, open, honest, transparent communication, getting everyone like going in the same direction in a kind of team collegial sort of way. That was, that was my intuition. I'd say over the last like few years, I've actually learned by reading some good books and like trying to study some of the actual science behind how do you build a successful team and a healthy team and a team that works well together. Okay. Book recommendations, please. Yeah. So one, one is one I'd seen forever, but never read it. It's called Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's one of those books that like you look on the business shelf and you're like, oh, it's probably some BS like fluffy book or whatever. It's actually really good. It's by a guy who writes a lot on team health and company health. Mm -hmm. And I think it's actually really like a foundation of good management and good company culture. And then interestingly, the guy wrote, I don't know, he wrote the book maybe in the 2000s or something. And then Google did a bunch of research over the last 10 years on what makes healthy teams and successful teams. They looked at like their highest performing teams. I think it was called like Project Aristotle. Maybe you can Google it, I think. And what they found that makes the most high performing teams was actually like really exactly what this guy who's a management consultant saw through his experience and observation. So it's, I thought that was really interesting. It's actually like an empirical grounding, like a scientific grounding of like, Hmm. at least in this, at least in software and, you know, this era, what makes teams healthy and successful. Okay. That I would like to know your opinion then of what makes teams healthy and successful since you are a CEO. (laughs) Yeah, I'll just kind of run through the framework. And Mm -hmm. this this really does govern a lot of what what I think about. So so healthy teams start with a layer of trust. So if people don't trust each other, um, you're nothing's going to work. On top of that layer of trust, you need open, honest discussion, including people disagreeing, including debate, including healthy conflict. Like one of the things Google found is like their highest performing teams every person on the team spoke up and on lower performing mm. teams, they were like dominated by one person. So you need that foundation of trust that lets everyone speak up, gets the best ideas on the table. People can disagree with each other. They can say that's wrong. And then from there, it's like making clear decisions and saying who does what. So everyone's clear. Okay. I, I might disagree with it, but like we made the decision and like you're responsible for this thing. So deciding then being accountable and then making the last thing is just making sure that you're everyone's aiming towards like real goals, like the the same goal. Mm -hmm. If people are doing, if one team is making a decision or one person's making a decision based on like their own ego or agenda and someone else is trying to do it by what's best for the company, like that doesn't work. You really need everyone focused on the results. Okay. I don't know how to ask this without making it like a leading question, but do you think that it's important to have diverse hiring then because having opposing opinions is important? I definitely do. There's actually two schools of thought on this. There's one school of thought that's you want everyone to be the same. So you have no conflict. And so Mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about like interpersonal relationships. Like, I don't know, maybe that works, but I think you run into a lot of problems that way. I think if you Mm -hmm. don't want to do that, like everyone, you only hire your friends then absolutely. I think, and this is what we try to do at Mux, I think it's really valuable to, it's both valuable to have a diversity of perspectives. And that's all of the the traditional types of diversity, as well as diversity of background and company. You don't ever come from the same company, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. I think it's, I think it's really important to get the right ideas on the table. And actually Mm -hmm. the work that you do, the work that you do to be like an inclusive place that's like welcoming a lot of people, I think it really overlaps with the work that you need to do to build a culture of trust and safety which is the foundation of a healthy team. Yeah, 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 I agree. And when I say diversity, I really mean, yeah, diversity of background, of skills, of education, of race and color and gender and everything like that. Yeah, I think, I I personally think that it's important. And I would rather, if I was going to be a CEO, I think I would rather hire people who are going to 
argue and disagree with each other than everybody who's just going to be like, yes, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I think th th there's more than one way to succeed. Like there's some like really toxic companies that succeed, but that, that, that what you're describing is what is what I want to do. Okay, cool. And so Thierry, I'm going back to you now. What do you wish you knew before you started uh, your company? All right. Yeah, a lot of things. But I think <laughs> one of the, one of the, and study business and for, for many years we built these books and I thought I always thought it, it was very hard to translate that into the day-to-day -day of running, running a startup. Mm -hmm. uh, one book recommendation that I think was excellent and really helped us structure how we run the business and is this book called Track. You should have a look at that. I think it's an excellent book. I like how it distills uh, a lot of the management best practices down to something simple that the whole team can understand. So that's an area that we've been very focused on, like making sure that we have very regular meetups about the KPIs, about the progress on main goals. We recently implemented this tool called Lattice to make sure that all goal, all teams have clear goals and that we that their mm -hmm. managers have a framework that uh, ensures that they do all the management best practices. Mm -hmm. Because one thing that we noticed is that so many of our team members went from being the, the leader or the individual contributor on a team to now having relatively large teams reporting to them. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But they often don't have a lot of experience managing uh, larger yep. teams. So yeah, that's how uh, I'm feeling right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, for us, like Lattice came in, came in quite helpful because it standardizes okay. things like one-on-ones, performance reviews, tracking your goals. I also thought that, uh, so one of our investors, Dharma Shah, he wrote this piece, you can Google it, about like vectors and aligning the organization and making sure that everyone's working mm. towards the same goal. And I actually think that when you get past, say, 30, 40 people, that becomes one of the hardest things. Like it's just, it's about aligning people to make sure that they're working towards the same goal and right. then recruiting. And yeah, it's funny because if you're getting started with a, with a new company, you're so focused on the product, you're focused on the engineering mm -hmm. side of it, but then at some point indeed it becomes all about, about recruiting as well. Yeah. Okay. So what, at what point of a startup's life is, are you going to be putting in like management processes? A little bit at the beginning, but then uh, a lot more after, say, 40, 50 people. Uh, you mm -hmm. get more structured around defining all the process, all the processes in your company. You get more structured around goals. You switch from Trello and Excel-based, like, tracking of things to, like, proper Jira. Like, everything gets more formalized a little bit around, like, 40, 50 people. At least that's mm -hmm. how, it was, how it was for us. Was that the same experience you had, John? Yeah, pretty similar. I think the, it's a stage of a startup that's just mm -hmm. trying to get the product market fit. And at that point, you can be pretty process light. You can be pretty management light. You can be pretty flat. Like you're just trying to get a product that customers love and will pay you money for and make that repeatable. But then the next stage is like, how do you grow and scale that? And I think that is, for us, it was probably around 40 or 50 people too. That's the point at which you, you have to really invest in good management, good executive leadership, which is mm -hmm. different. Like management and executive leadership are two different skills, mm -hmm. uh, all those kind of things. Yeah. Okay. So I would love to talk about the scaling process then, because as a non-CEO, I think this is the part that like really ups with my mind because it just seems like so complicated and so much like big picture. So the area, what are some, some, some of the things that keep you up at night about scaling your business? A uh, couple things. I think the it's very hard to, to make sure that your APIs are flexible enough to support all the different use cases. So we spent mm. A ton of time trying to make sure that any possible chat or messaging or activity feed use case actually fits our API model because the, the value prop of, of selling an API is that it's reusable. So in theory, we can spend a thousand times 
the time and resources on building something than like our customers can just because we get to reuse the same bit over and over again and then focus on optimizing it. But that only works if you get reusability right and it only works if you get the reliability and performance. So those two things I spend a lot of time uh, thinking about. And yeah, those are the main, the main ones. Okay. What about you, John? I'd say the thing specific to API businesses is just that mm. you are a mission critical part of your customer's business. And mm. you have to be perfect, which, which yeah. is a really good bar. And no one is perfect because software is not perfect. Yes. Um, if you F up, your reputation is on the line. Yeah, exactly. And your customers might have their entire businesses on the line. It, right. it might just be your employees, maybe their employees too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, that's not something that I put too much thought into. But as a startup, I guess you have to have an amazing track record as well. Otherwise, people will not believe you or invest in you. Okay, building off of that, how did you get people to believe in you when you first started, John? Um, the first time with Zencoder, it was it was just building a product that that customers really liked. It was good design, both partly visual design, but also just like product design, documentation, support, all the things that people care about. With Mux, it was a little easier because we had a reputation. So a lot of people mm -hmm. who knew video already knew us. And so, oh, they're doing something new. I want to read it. So that gave us a leg up, all but right. it only takes you so far. And then after the first few customers, you really do have to, you know, keep proving it yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Theory, then how did you build trust and prove yourself with your business? Yeah, in the beginning, that was that was quite hard. We did some open, some famous open source software, so that that made it easier for some people to to trust us. But in the beginning, we had some companies with 30, 40 million users trusting the core of their app to literally me and Tommaso. It was the two of yeah. us. You wonder about their judgment doing that, but we're very grateful for them trusting Stream so so early on. And yeah. I think after but why that, did they trust you? Uh, I think our reputation and I think the pain was just more acute. Like they really didn't mm -hmm. want to build this in-house and uh, a lot of them were smaller startups, but also some really large ones. Yeah, And in, in general, we're just very uh, grateful for the trust that those companies Ooh. placed in us. But yeah. after you get the first few, you start to leverage that. So you are in conversations with some of the larger apps and you talk about your other customers. Yeah, and nowadays you have these really large companies like, like Hopin, Vimeo using using uh, Stream. Um, I saw that we have some customers in common, by the way, John. So that's, and I think we try to signal it on, the, on some quality metrics as well on our website. So nowadays we run chat on the edge, which is something that's a lot of work to do, but it showcases like how much we care about performance. We build our own storage technology on top of RocksDB and Raft. For some of the larger live event apps, because many live event apps these days use Stream, we scale all the way up to 5 million concurrent uh, connections on a single channel. Uh, so we mm -hmm. do some of these things that, and we talk about that, which I think make uh, customers believe that, they're, that mm. they uh, can trust uh, Stream. And uh, I think nowadays it's much easier than when we just got started. Also, shameless plug, we're hiring for iOS, Android, Go. Our core technology is written Go. And uh, yeah, we, that's one of the main, the other things that keep me up at night, like just being able to hire and keep on hiring. Hire people. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. So also one of the things that you just said that I want to pause and pull out there is that I think you're saying that to build trust and to get customers, you need to make sure that your product and the problem that it's solving is more important to the customer than the fear of you fucking up their business. 
Yeah, so basically in the beginning, nine out of 10 potential customers will decide not to use you because of their particular pain points or because they're, they want to, to, they're more open to trying out new technology. They start using you and then step-by-step, step, you start to gather more customers and then it becomes much easier to convince uh, more established companies to, to use your APIs as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I guess I also wanna know, what was the point in time of your business, John, that you realized that Mux was gonna- Yeah, that's, that's a really good, interesting question because every stage is different. I would say, mm -hmm. I would say from the beginning, we had a lot of conviction, but you never know. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, then, was uh, there one big customer where you were just, yup, this is it, I'm good. Yeah, if, if I'm, I'm going to pick a time, it'd probably be 2019. We started signing our first, we launched our second product in 2018. So we have two products, both in video, second mm -hmm. one. 2019, we started signing up some of the first like really big customers of that product. There were customers like Robinhood and Visco who do a lot of video. And at that point, it was like, okay, I think this is going in the right direction. Yeah, cool. That's cool. How did you celebrate? <laughs> Oh man, I'm terrible at that kind of thing personally, because every time something good happens, I'm like, that's awesome. Yeah, now we next. Next. Yeah. next. Exactly, <laughs> mm -hmm. exactly. That's um, a very CEO mindset, I feel. But I, th I think we did. We'll, we'll do champagne for big deals sometimes in the office. Back, back oh, when nice. we were yeah. in the office, you know, that kind of thing, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, that's cool. The area, did you have a big moment where you were like, oh uh, yeah, this is it? <laughs> I think the, yeah, I think the last scary moment that we had for, for stream was when COVID just hit and quite a few of our customers started going. So initially that looked scary, mm -hmm. but then healthcare, education, life events all picked up, which mm. we went from, oh, these numbers don't look so great. I hope this doesn't keep up to, oh, yeah, look, things growing really fast. So that's okay, been, yeah. that was probably the last scary moment, but I think that's, as soon as you get to 50k in in MRR, uh, which we did in, in like year year one or year two, uh, you get to the point where you're uh, as long as you're motivated and you like your team, there's usually a way to to continue and to to make the business succeed. And I also feel like we have a responsibility to our customers to because there's been so many stories of API companies that shut down and didn't do well. I think our customers are a little bit scared of that uh, as well. So from early on, we were very focused on making sure that our customers have a good experience in terms of uptime, in terms of like stability for the company. So we took, yeah, we were very motivated to make that yeah. happen. And I think as soon as you get to even low revenue numbers. At some point, you have enough money to feed the team, and then then it's hard. It becomes uh, some. One of my investors said that companies are like unkillable after that point, and it's not always true. But I think it, to some extent, yeah. there's some truth to that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. And let me peep into your corporate culture. How would you celebrate a big win? You don't. Uh, <laughs> We're, we are uh, like similar to, to John. We are we are not great at celebrating. We'll sometimes do some drinks with the investors or we'll uh, go for like a sports game or things like that. But we don't do uh, a whole lot of celebrations. I'm always focused on the next target. So. Oh, you CEOs. <laughs> yeah, I need to work on this. <laughs> I uh, love a good celebration. So I'm going to take that opportunity every chance I get. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I... uh, mm-hmm. I was gonna say, I don't recommend the, the approach I take. And I, I love when our team like takes a different approach because I think it's really healthy to celebrate wins. Yeah, uh, yeah, especially because like you said, it. I think it's usually always, okay, on to the next, like, great job, everybody. Cool, let's move on. And I feel like 
I don't know. I guess this is some tips for you too. As a person who works as a startup in like a lower role, I feel like celebrating the small wins and be like building off the company's success makes me feel like a better employee, makes me feel like more motivated to work harder. And then it's like, oh, you get the the props or whatever, like people are recognizing you for your hard work. I think that's so important as a startup to to help with, yeah, like motivating people. I don't know. I think like it's such a beautiful part of my job that I love it. <laughs> okay, cool. Thank you guys very much for joining the podcast. I appreciate it. I learned a lot about APIs that I did not know before. So thank you very much. Thierry, if we want to find you and what, we're, what you're working on online, where can we look? So the website is getstream.io. Okay. And John, where can we find you and what you're working on online? Yeah, mux.com, blog.mux.com. I, I write there a bit. Yeah, those are probably the best. How did you get Great. a three-letter domain name? That's awesome. Like, uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it was not easy, but, but we did it. Yeah, it's tight. Okay, cool. And then I also want to put a little note in here that these guys are nominated for Startup of the Year. So at the time of this recording, I don't have too much detail on where you can vote and uh, what you need to do, but I will put that in the show notes. And so go, please go vote for these guys for Startup of the Year. Thank you very much. If you like this episode of the Hacker Noon podcast, don't forget to like it, share it, subscribe to it, do all the things. And this episode was hosted by me, Amy Tom. It was produced by Hacker Noon, edited by our lovely audio wizard, Alex. And you can find us at Hacker Noon on all the socials. See you on the internet. Stay weird. Goodbye.